Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Matthew Bishop. Well, good evening, and um, it's my honour to welcome to the stage Ricardo Salinas, or Ricardo B. Salinas, uh, I think your middle name is a tribute to your great-grandfather, your hero, and uh, how you're here. So, <clears throat> who uh, probably doesn't need much introduction, but uh, to suffice it to say that uh, you've been on the Forbes list of the world's richest people for uh, over a decade now, and you run the Grupo Salinas companies, including Banco Azteca, which uh, specializes in microfinance, uh, Grupo Electra, a big retail chain, and uh, Azteca, the second largest Spanish TV content producer in the world. Um, and you have a foundation, the Fundacion Azteca, as well. Um, I tweeted earlier uh, that I was going to be uh, talking to you this evening, and you very bravely replied, I am ready, uh, so bring it on. And uh, you've seen some of the tweets that were generated by other people, so we'll come to those later. I'm going to start with a relatively light uh, question in terms of uh, not as hostile as some of those tweets were, but uh, um, I want to ask you, like, I, I spend most of my time at the moment thinking about the global economy, um, which you know, looks, from where I sit, very, very precarious. How does it look from Mexico, from where you are? Well, I mean, obviously the thing that's going on in Europe in terms of this uh, excessive debt that there's no way to pay back is going to have a very unhappy ending. Uh, somebody's going to pay. It's either going to be the, the local countries who cannot make back um, the, the payments uh, to, or, or, or if, they, if they plan to make it back, they're going to be raising taxes to an unsustainable level or it's going to be the bondholders or it's going to be some other taxpayer. So that's bad news all around because the debts have been invested unwisely. Uh, all that debt has not been gone to productive investments, and that's a fact we need to face. So Europe is a big problem, and America is coming back. You know, there's much uh, more growth than expected, not as much as one would want, and certainly unemployment here. I don't need to talk to you about that. But in that context, uh, Mexico is, is doing fairly well because uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a young country. There's lots of human capital. There's 112 million people living in Mexico, and uh, they're doing better, and they certainly will do much better. So I'm an optimist at heart, uh, but the world situation is not... Uh, well, does it feel fragile to you? I mean, does it matter too much what happens in Europe? You know, um, I think that what's going to happen in, in uh, these indebted countries... Is, is a film that we already saw in Mexico. At the end of the day, you have uh, governments that have borrowed much more than they can pay. And guess what? They're not going to pay. This is going to be Argentina or Mexico just reloaded. You can't pay, you can't pay. So it's like that joke we with two, the two Jewish uh, men who couldn't sleep at night. You know, One couldn't sleep because he owed the amount of money to the other. And Sarita just tells him, well, why don't you call Abraham? And then the guy who can't speak is Abraham, who can't sleep. You know. uh, it depends. <laughs> who shouldn't sleep, the one who can't pay or the one who can't collect? From my side in banking, it's the sleepless goes to the banker. Mm -hmm. um, Mexico seems to have actually come through the last three years 
you know, pretty much better than everyone felt it would at the time. Well, what's, what's been the secret? Well, you know, what you hear out of Mexico these days is really bad news, you know? Headless people, murderers, everybody's scared, in the country, outside the country. But of course, being in the media, you know, there's this bias. If it's good news, no news. And the only news that are going to print or sell is these type of horrible things. So right now, Mexico is going through this Colombia syndrome, that time when anything you heard out of Colombia was just bad news. That's where we are right now. And it's very, very unfortunate because the fact of the matter is, again, 112 million people, the vast majority of which are hardworking, honest, peaceful individuals, are getting a bum rap. And they're scared at home, even though these events are isolated and are occurring between gangs and between uh, the forces of the government and these gangs. So the vast majority of people live a very tranquil life. But the economy itself, I mean, I, I, I was what I was really referring to, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that seems to have held up reasonably strongly, despite, yeah. you know, we, we, we can talk about the, the issues around drugs and gangs in a yes. moment. But Again, because when, when you hear all these bad news, you expect more bad news. So obviously, if America goes down, then Mexico down worse, you know? There's a saying in, in Mexico that if America catches a cold, we get pneumonia. <laughs> and, and, and yes, when, when the crisis of 08, 09 hit, it was terrible. I mean, the manufacturing industry that exports to the United States, especially the automotive industry, went to practically zero. But it came back really fast. So that's just part of our economy. The other thing is the Mexican economy is an internal market of 112 million people. It's, it's quite strong, and, and it's going to get better as more and more Mexicans enter the middle class. So you mentioned the Colombia experience, um, you know, which you know, was pretty painful for a very long period of time. And I guess by that metric, we're going to be sort of well into the next presidency in Mexico before that battle is won, if it's going to be won. Is, is that how long it's going to take? No. Well, well, well first, um, I pointed out the, the, the parallel in terms of the bad news, but I think the fundamental situation in Colombia was very different. In Colombia, there existed a guerrilla force that historically, you know, back to the 60s, uh, it, it had a long history of being communist guerrilla. And it was aggravated by the lack of, of the rule of law, by the paramilitary right-wingers who were, took the law into their own hands. That situation is completely different in Mexico. In Mexico, this is not a guerrilla problem at all, and the territory is secured by the government forces. But, yeah, as long as American drug addicts consume these huge amounts of drugs and continue to send tons of cash into our countries, and I'm speaking in plural, aggravated with high-caliber ammunition and, and, and weapons. I mean, there's no way that this war is going to be won. It's, it's just I mean, a failed think, I mean, strategy. It, I mean, it's, you think it's a fundamentally misguided strategy? Absolutely a wrong strategy, and there's no way out of it. So here we are, you know, fighting this 
who knows what, with incredible resources spent, wasted in my country and many other countries. For what? What would you do? Absolutely. I would treat this as a health problem. Drugs are a health problem. Poor little druggies, they're in a, in a hole. They, we should try and help them get out of it, but not make it a criminal offense unless they act, do a criminal act. Now, if you're a drug addict and you go steal something or kill something, then you get put in the slammer, right? But other than that, it's just a miserable life that they're, they're living, and we should make it worse by making them criminals. You know, America invented prohibition, amended the Constitution. One of the very few amendments to the Constitution was to prohibit alcohol. And then 10 years later, they found out they created this huge mafia with enormous economic resources, and they amended the Constitution again to allow it. It just feels so far away from that situation, though, when it comes to, to drugs. It's, it's, it, you know, it's hard to imagine the political circumstances in America yeah. where you would get that kind of policy, and so that, therefore it's very hard to feel optimistic about well, Mexico being spared this and the rest of Central America. And so. You know, absolutely true, and that's why I'm, I'm uh, doing this in, in the United States, and I'm, I'm just speaking common sense. When I, I find a small group and we get a chance to talk, I show this and everybody says, well, yeah, you're right, but it's not going to change. But when everybody thinks like that, maybe it will change. You know, because this thing of, of the war on drugs and same, the same problem with immigration is so obvious. And most people, you know, they just see it as obvious. But nobody's willing to take the first step. So I think as, as leaders, we should and we must take the first step and put out new ideas out there and have them at least discussed. Now, um you last appeared in The Economist um, in a story we wrote about uh, exporting motorcycles to, yeah. to Brazil. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested you know, how you see the contrast between the Mexican economy and the Brazilian economy. I mean, I last, every time I go to Mexico, everyone, spend, all the business leaders spend their time telling me how it's unfair that Mexico is not called a brick. And, <laughs> seem very jealous that Brazil's getting all this great press. But how, yes. I mean, how different do you see the, the business environments in those two economies? Well, to start, Brazil had a fantastic president in the form of Lula da Silva, a charismatic, a charming guy who nobody thought could turn this country around, and he did. And not only that, but he gave back the self-esteem to the Brazilians. Also, something that Uribe did with Colombia. Uh, you speak these days with Brazilians, and they are, you know, in control, and they're going to own the world. Same thing happens in Colombia. In Mexico, our leadership has stumbled, and by hooking onto this monotheme of the war against violence, uh, we have missed the boat in many things that need to be done. So, so would you say Zedillo was the last? Effective president? Tillio? Mm. No. Not even him. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Mexico has had a, a mismanagement situation for many, many years. When I started my career in 1980, uh, I used to work in, in the U.S. as a salesman. And I was making you know, $2,000 a month. I thought, you know, could barely pay the rent and whatever. So anyway, my dad convinced me to go back to Mexico 
and he's a real screw, so he cut my salary to half. <laughs> but, you know, a thousand dollars in Mexico will go a long way, so I say, okay. Is it true? That, I mean, you didn't actually want to work for the family business. Is that no, right? no. I was out on my own uh, because I know what it means to be in the family business. <laughs> you know, Which is worse. Deal with dad. <laughs> so I came back, and, and, you know, next thing I know, we had this huge evaluation, and I was making $300 a month instead of a thousand. And the company went broke. We had 54 stores. It was a really trying time, you know, 82 through about 88, 87. Those five years were a real, real crisis. And I don't think anybody, I mean, very few people have been, have gone through that. Just, just imagine, the dollar was worth 20 pesos and it ended up after five years at 800. So what could you buy from 20 to 800? That's the size of the impoverishment that took place in the country. But in spite of that, you know, through competition, you know, competing in the marketplace, hard work, I was able to turn the company around, and Electel had only 54 stores. Now today we have 2,700. Today we have a bank with 20 million customers. And how does the Brazilian economy compare to that? It's, it's, it's very complicated to do business in Brazil. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you a story again. Now, we started a few years ago there, and we opened up some stores. So we set up a distribution center for that. And, you know, we're having a hard time here with competition. How, how is it? We're not making any money. Well, it turns out that we missed the place by four kilometers. If we had done the distribution center four kilometers over here, we would have saved 17% of, of sales tax. Now, I, why didn't we know about it? Well... That's the problem of doing business in Brazil. The, the local taxes are really a nightmare. You should have done your due diligence, I guess. Well, we did, but not right enough. Huh? <laughs> but, I mean, so you've, I mean, do, do you think, as you look at those two economies, I mean, there's a real sense that there's a dynamism to the Brazilian economy that still isn't there in Mexico, that Mexico is no. still too uncompetitive in terms of its internal dynamics, it's still too hard for an entrepreneur uh, oh, from no. outside the elite to really get oh get no I, I would say that it's much more difficult to operate in Brazil than in Mexico and by any measure because of all the different regulations that exist and because also Brazil is lacking a lot of infrastructure so I mean Brazil has 180 million people and all of them are young and, and, and they're well educated doing good but Mexico is far ahead you know in the uh, in per capita, in infrastructure, uh, I think in, in training, in, in high-quality labor, and, and high-quality workmanship is much better in Mexico. Just but if you were a young entrepreneur with a, you know, no connections, just a great idea, mm -hmm. would you go to Mexico or would you go to Brazil to start your business? Hmm, probably China. <laughs> Ducking yeah. the question. Yeah. <laughs> where in Latin America would you go and actually start a business? Where, where, where's the most favorable place to get going? Brazil or Mexico? Yeah, but I wouldn't put Mexico way down. I mean, the problem we have in Mexico really is just the constant intrusion of all kinds of regulations. Look, we set up this business for microcredit for women uh, just one year ago. In one year, we went from zero customers to 400,000. Next year, we're going to have a million and a half customers. Now, the reason it's important is these women, they're all hardworking head of family. 
they don't want the job because they have to take care of family at home. So they want something that can work at home. I went just to a conference. Uh, I went to a conference with uh, twelve hundred of these ladies last week. And I was amazed at the creativity of all these businesses that they've invented. And we asked them for some feedback. You no, know, what? How can we help you? Well, unanimous. It's all government problems related. The licencia de uso de suelo. All right. Is that the end? <laughs> I think we dance or something. Okay. <laughs> No, they, they, they need a license to open the store, they need a license to pay, uh, to, to sell um, food, they, they need to, to register with a tax, it's too complex. If you have employees, you have to do the withholding. The withholding is immensely complicated, you need an accountant. Uh, if you make a, a, a partnership, you need to go register with a notary, get a license from the Ministry of Exterior Relations, very important. No. <laughs> Bullshit. I mean, all across. And now, and now these, they're coming. Well, I guess uh, you've played this both ways. I mean, the, the previous story that you were in The Economist about was called Battling Billionaires, mm. which was, yeah. I guess, the fact that you want to get into the mobile telephone, into the telephone business in a much bigger way than you are already. Take on uh, Carlos Slim. Yeah. And he wants to get into television in a big way. Um, and it looks like the government's keen to make that happen. Yeah. How soon? And uh, are you quaking in your boots at the prospect of <laughs> Mr. Well, Slim? Look, let's just put it this way. The, the telecom market in Mexico is worth $30 billion. The TV market is worth three. So, you know, it, it's not even comparable. And Mr. Slim is, is the richest man in the world, according to that list. <laughs> Depends how you measure richness or wealth. Huh? But, um, you know, I have a very good relationship. Do you think you're higher than him, really? <laughs> I have a very good relationship with Slim, and I had it for many years, and we worked together in many things. But at the end of the day, in this business, we parted company because the discrimination in pricing is a really bad thing here. You know, it's designed to drive out the competition. So... In that sense, uh, I think we're in the right side of the complaint. I think that, that if they're going to give away access to their phone network for their customers, well, our customers deserve the same treatment, certainly. No? And I'm all for giving it away if they want to do it, but it has to be the same for all. And if you're the big guy, you own 70% of the market, and you decide to uh, finish up the competition by by making a free-to-all-except-us kind of offer, I think that, that's wrong. Huh? Now, President Calderon has made some <laughs> initiatives to you know, increase the amount of competition in the economy, which mm -hmm. you know, I, I think seems to be probably one of the least competitive in terms of if you look at the market share, the number of oligopolies there are in mm -hmm. key industries. I mean, but it still seems like that's a very slow-moving process of introducing competition. Do, do, you, do, you, do you expect it to accelerate? Do you think it needs to accelerate? I'm all for it, absolutely. And you know, when we started the business, we competed head-to-head -head with all the... I mean, my life has been about competition all through my 30-year career. Electra was nothing. We took on Salinas y Rocha. We took on Walmart. We took on uh, Coped. We compete we grow. 
started the bank eight years ago, took on the whole banking sector and the regulators who didn't approve our, our idea, and they're through competition, through offering a better service, we now have 20 million customers. And last year we started the microcredit business, there's tons of microfinance business all around. Well, you know, we have 400,000 customers, we're gonna go up to a million and a half. When we bought TV Azteca, we had zero audience, today we had 40%. We had zero income, uh, share of the pie, Today we have 31%. This is all through competition, through offering a better option to consumers. That's what I'm about. So I'm all for competition. And unfortunately, the, the Comisión de Competencia Económica has been remiss. They have not just not doing their job, you know. Until we started this fight with, with Slim, they had never put a, a big fine on, on that monopoly. They finally did it, a billion dollar fine. Now let's see if they collect, huh? <laughs> but they do crazy things. Like, for example, they declared that in mobile phones, all the participants are dominant. Now, how can you explain that? You have a, a three-way market. One has 70%, the other has 20 and the other one has 5 and there's another one that has another 5 They take three and say, these are dominant. Exclude this one and treat the same. The guy that has 5 the other has 70%. How is that? It's just amazing. So yes, we need to have more pro-competition, but the most important thing that we need if we want to be competitive is to get the government out of all the obstacles that they generate, especially for small business. Us in big business, we can take care of it with lawyers, with accountants, and with litigation costs. We can absorb that. But small businesses, they cannot pay for one accountant. They cannot pay for one lawyer. And I think that's the problem with, with growth in Mexico and in Latin America, because it's the same story. You go to Guatemala, same story. You go to Honduras, same story. It's always the government, no, 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 or give me, give me, give me, in some way. Now, one of the themes that we've been uh, running with for quite a while in The Economist is this notion that there's a struggle for the soul of Latin America going on between, I guess, the Chavez wing and, and then the, the, the market capitalist wing. What, what's the state of play in that struggle at the moment as you look at it? Well, in Mexico specifically. <clears throat> across the region, but also in Mexico. Well, across the region, I mean, um, you, if, if you look at the, uh, at the socialism of, uh, of Lula, I guess we all signed up for that, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, look at the results. Um, but if you look at the socialism of Chavez, I don't know, nobody's going to sign up for that part. We're certainly not investing in Venezuela or in Ecuador or in Nicaragua. We're not, and we won't, because I have no confidence in, in those leaders. But we are investing a lot in Peru, in Brazil, in Colombia, just recently, and in Mexico. Now, in Mexico, I think the leadership can be improved. We'll have an election next year. There's going to be a three-way election. On the left side, we'll have uh, there's Manuel López Obrador, who has succeeded in doing the impossible, because he actually united the left wing they tend to be extremely divisive. So they agreed to post postulate him as a unique candidate. On the right, we'll have the ruling party, the PAN. Uh, probably Josefina is going to win. Josefina Vasquez Mota, because she has 50, 60% approval. Not the candidate of the president. But if Manuel, and then in the if middle. If AMLO was to win, um, mm -hmm. what, what, what odds would you put on that? Because he came so close last time. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. AMLO knows it perfectly. It has to be a three way race because, in his own words, the left doesn't get more than 35% approval in Mexico. And he says that. 
So unless you have, a div in a two-way race, he could never win. That's why he'll never go for the second round, in the second ballot round. Huh? So, so you think he has no chance of winning? No, no, I, I think he has a chance. And um, I have a long relationship with Mr. Lopez Obrador. Um, we talk, and I think uh, I respect him, and he respects me, I think. <laughs> Even though I'm not on that list, you know, he wrote this horrible book about the mafia that manages Mexico, and my name is there. <laughs> so I said, hey, why do you put me as a mafia? I mean, where are my buddies? I don't see any of my buddies of the mafia anywhere close to me. He said, well, uh, you got to understand that I'm writing a book, and, and it all started with a list of this magazine. And so that's the reason I'm there? Yeah. So but would he govern more like Chavez or more like Lula? I think more like Lula, definitely. Chavez is a military man. He's a surgeon. And, you know, he has a big heart. He's a, quite emotive, emotional. He used to be a singer. You know, one guy that worked for me taught me this story. He's, they had a trio of, of guitar guys. It was called Los Hugos. And Chavez was in the trio. <laughs> and so when he came to Mexico the first time, uh, this man that worked for me, when he said hello, and said, ah, go big hug, and they want to start to sing right there. So he's a very emotive guy, but he's wrong. His policies are wrong. Um, now, you're here partly to do an event with the mayor of New York, yeah. uh, Michael Bloomberg, about immigration. Tell us a bit about what you're hoping to do on that front. Same thing. We need to just look at things the way they are. In this country, there's millions of immigrants, especially from Mexico, who for some reason or another come in here and they're here. And we've got to deal with that. They're not going to wait. They're not going to go away. They're here. And further, because of the huge border and the porosity that we have, they'll continue to come and go. And we just need to have put new ideas in play. You know, it's amazing to me to, to think about it. This border that we have, there's free exchange of information through the internet, through the satellite TV. Uh, there's there's exchange of investments, you know, the Walmarts over there, the GMs over there. Over here we have uh, the beers and the Azteca Americas and whatever. There's tremendous trade, over $360 billion of trade coming back and forth. Everything flows except one thing. The most valuable thing that humans have is human capital. That is not allowed to flow. It's a mistake because... So what do you think the solution is? At the end of the day, human capital is just a capital like any other. It will go towards most needed. And for every illegal immigrant over here, you have an illegal employer. You know, Everybody is employing these people for good reason because they're hardworking, honest people who do their job. So we've got a Republican Party debating seriously putting an electrified fence along the border. Yeah, I mean, that's I so that's creative, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean what, 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 what's your alliance with Mr. Bloomberg and uh, the well, Canadian? Well, I think that New York is a good place to start because it's by far the most uh, cosmopolitan and advanced city in the United States. Mm -hmm and where the best and the brightest from all the world come to join and do things. And it's also a city that's based on immigration, of all kinds of different <clears throat> nationalities, religion, ethnicities. So it's a good place to point out that diversity is a good thing, and that immigration is 
a founding block of the American dream. That's how this great country was made, <coughs> through immigration. And they really have some really bad policies. For example, they spend a lot of, of money here in America <coughs> educating people in the best universities. And then as soon as they finish, they kick them back home so they can produce with all the education in their other home countries instead of producing in this country where they could start paying taxes and creating jobs. Isn't that counterproductive? So that's what I'm saying. Human capital needs to be viewed differently. And, and of course people are scared. And are you calling for a change in that policy? Or is that, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. I, th I think that, again, the current state of affairs leads to what we have now. If we continue to have the same policy, we'll have more of the same, which is a mess, right? In many cases, these immigrants are mistreated, they are abused, they are badly paid, maybe the taxes they pay are not entered into the coffers of the government, you know, all kinds of problems. Why not fix it? Why not accept that it's a reality and that we might as well face it? Now, you, you mentioned how many Mexicans there are here in America, and I mean, you are one, one of the major providers to the Latino market here in the States. I mean, how do you, how do you see their role, particularly in the forthcoming presidential election in the U.S.? I mean, what, what, what's on the mind of the, the Latino consumer here in the Well, US? somebody was telling me today that uh, there's about 21 million registered Latinos to vote. And I'm not sure about this number, I just heard it today. But that only 6 million showed up to vote. Now, of course, there's more Latinos, huh? but registered to vote. Only 6 showed up. So again, you know, I think... Um, by and large, the, the Latino community is going about their business, surviving, you know, working, doing their, their duties and their jobs, not thinking politics. And it's good and it's bad. But the fact is, the Latino community here in the States is, is something different. It's not the Mexicans in the U.S., but they're not Americans either. You know? They're like in between here. This is a new melting pot uh, that's creating a new kind of culture and, and peculiar civilization. So we just might as well deal with it. That's the way it is. It's not going to change. Because how are you going to get rid of all these people? Do you think they're going to go to the polls in support of Mr. Obama next year or stay <coughs> home even more? Well, they were telling me that Obama has sent more deportations than any other president in the history of the United States. So, now with that thing in mind, it's hard to, to think that the Latinos would support him, but uh, you've got to think about who's going to be in front, right? Yeah, somebody worse. might want to break that record, I guess. Instead of deporting, they might cut their heads off or something. <laughs> Send them to Afghanistan. Mm. No, it's, it's really a, a, a disgrace, I think, in terms of human uh, policy. I mean, the result of this policy in, in lost opportunities is just horrendous. It's the same thing as drugs. Make believe it doesn't exist. Make believe that it's under control. It's not. And it's creating huge problems. Especially the drugs, you know, it's creating huge problems for Latin America. Because the flow of, of money and, ar and armament is really a challenge. And, and of course the obvious thing needs to be pointed out. How is it? 
that in this great country there's not a single top-notch cartel operator. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is the country that brought us Walmart, Citibank, and GM. And, but no, in cartels, they're just small guys, you know, dealing drugs in the streets. It's ridiculous. And here, obviously, these organizations exist, and they must be huge, but they've never shown to be caught. So again, make-believe it doesn't exist. Like the immigration problem. Make-believe it doesn't exist. Now, a number of the tweets that I generated when, when people responded to, to my request for questions concern your management style. And I'm yeah. going <coughs> to phrase this question very carefully. Um, so Steve Jobs, we've discovered, um, you know, turned out to be a, a, t a kind of difficult person to deal with sometimes, yet produced tremendous success. Uh, do you relate to that notion, uh, that style of management? That, I mean, you, you've got to be tough on your employees sometimes to get perfection and that kind of thing. You know, we have over 60,000 employees in the group, and I could probably count with one hand top-level guys who have left. No, they, they don't leave, they get fired, mostly. And even at that, I'm not particularly good at firing people. I tend to stick around with, with, with the guys I trust and I respect. But I am very demanding. Uh, you know, I think that the, the only way to be successful is to have a passion for what you're doing now, so that it's not a, like a drag to get up in the morning or to be in an interview at 8.20 p.m. where I could go to a restaurant and have a nice wine or whatever. You have to have passion. And you have to have perseverance. Because there's always obstacles thrown in your way, different kinds of obstacles. All the time, obstacles, obstacles. And, and to be successful, you have to, be, you have to have the mindset that you are going to go over the obstacle. And thirdly, you have to have really hard work. So when you combine those things, it doesn't turn out to be a, like a tender, loving person. You've got to be tough. You've got to drive people. Well, it, it, it's, it's hard to say, tough, drive. I'm demanding. I, I expect people to work as hard as I do, and I get disappointed. And, but, um, yeah, that's what I expect. And, I mean, the, again, I mean, another theme of this was, you know, our own mayor here, Mike, Michael Bloomberg, is also famously, you know, he, feel, he takes it personally when people leave. Bloomberg, mm -hmm. the company, and I mean, do, do you, you seem to have a similar? Do you feel personally betrayed when people leave the company and go and work for competitor or something? As like? I said, hardly anybody leaves our group, um, at least not at the top level. I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, at the store level, uh, there's always going to be a turnover, uh, but at, at the top ranks of management, I would say, like, the, the top 500 people have extremely low turnover. And most of it is caused internally by us, by people who either misbehave, which is a common situation, unfortunately. And we will not tolerate uh, conduct that, that goes against our values, especially in, with integrity. And unfortunately, when some people get to a position of power, they tend to abuse their subordinates or go into relationships with... Uh, uh, that, that should not be in, in the business. 
So we are very tough on that. And it doesn't matter what the post is. If, if he's messing around, and we have a system, you know, where where we, we actually collect. Um, it's called on the state, and you can do it through the internet, through the phone, through whatever, and many means. If you have a complaint about the line of command, what's going on, it goes directly to my office, and it's taken care of by a special team. So yeah, I'm very demanding. And no, I don't take it personally if someone leaves. And usually it's very rare. And probably I've had maybe one or two in my whole career that I've missed. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, Carlos Slim may or may not be the top person on the, the rich list. But I mean, the two of the people he's jostling neck and neck with are Warren Buffett and, and, and Bill Gates. And they have, in America, been trying to actively recruit people to this rich list the giving, so the giving pledge where they're getting people to publicly sign up to give away at least half their wealth by the end of their life. Mm. They've been to China, scaring off the new Chinese billionaires by trying to get them to do the same, and to India, where the Indians don't seem terribly welcoming to that challenge. Uh, would they be welcome in Mexico? Will you be signing the giving pledge? I don't think so. <laughs> Why not? Well, you know, everybody's got a right to do whatever they please, you know, and I respect the, their their pledge and their ideas, but uh, in in our culture, at least in my culture, our family is the most important thing. It's not our business; it's our family. And um, in that respect, as as somebody who's created these businesses from scratch, uh, I would like to see the continuation of these businesses into the future. And if I gave away my stock in these businesses, which is at the end of the day, the famous fortune, it's just stock. And what would happen to these companies? They'd probably be sold and then bought by a, an investment bank syndicate. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the money would be recycled into some government bonds, which might not be collectible. <laughs> but, so, America seems to have done reasonably well this past century with that kind of structure of giving of companies not staying in the family forever and well, the public stock market. I don't agree so. with that policy. You know, why should, why should the, the government or society take away from an individual or a family because they, because they can? I don't think that's a particularly good policy. Uh, and, and also I think there's an element of, of hubris no? in, uh, in these people because you know, I'm so good and I'm going to give it all away and I'm going to prove that nobody else ever can do the same thing that I did. So you don't feel your competitive juices uh, <laughs> oozing at the thought of competing to, to outdo Mr. Gates as a philanthropist? I think my, my contribution to society will be much better uh, achieved through many different things that we do. Fundación Azteca, for example, I think is a, is a great model of what can be achieved. I'll throw you just a couple of examples. A couple of years ago, I found out about this Venezuelan program of the youth orchestras. I really liked it, and uh, my good friend Benjamin Sandler from Boston, he's a conductor, he really op opened my eyes to the human dimension of music. And so we set up this program just two years ago to have these youth orchestras. The idea is children between 7 and 17, mostly from, from needy homes and neighborhoods, learning to play music, orchestral music. So we set up, you know, a 220-person orchestra, and they 
play in just six months. They're playing Carmina Burana and the Ode to Joy and so forth. So what we saw here, again, passion for the instrument, perseverance through the lessons, hard work to master the instrument, and something else, teamwork, because this is the essence of an orchestra. So my idea is we now have 51 orchestras, about 40,000 boys and girls. Can we get this to 5 million boys and girls in five years? Yeah, we could. How? Ah, so then we set to work with the, or with the Fundacion and all the state governments and all using all our connections and our power to get the government to put part of the money that's required to buy the instruments and to payroll for the teachers and so forth. And, and we're on the way. We're going. So this is going to change the life of, of millions of young men and, and, and women for the better. I think it makes a real difference to have these... <laughs> on these two issues. Um, I want to just finish before we throw open to questions with asking you, you know, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Hmm. <clears throat> well, I, I don't think it's a, like a single thing, but it's, it's a, like a culture. The culture is work hard, make your best effort, and don't stop. And it doesn't matter if... Uh, people don't agree with you, just keep on going. If you believe it's what's right, just do it. I think that's, that's a, a general thing, a cultural thing that uh, through my father and my mother, my grandfather just sort of seeps down, you know, the culture of the family. So very individualistic, hard-working effort, that kind of thing. Great. Well, thank you. Let's turn it over to the audience for uh, some <coughs> questions and comments. Now it's time for you guys to ask questions to Mr. Salinas. I want to thank Mr. Bishop and Mr. Salinas for being here with us. Um, there are two of us going around with microphones, myself and Bossi on the other side. So if you guys could just come out to the aisles and we'll take your questions. Anyone? They're a bit shy. <laughs> I have a loud mouth. I don't need a microphone. There's one we're going to record it. So if you could speak into the microphone. Just whisper into the microphone. <laughs> Nicole Burry, just wondering, you have issues with the Mexican government. Have you ever thought of running for public office, and why? God forbid. <laughs> no. no, you know, um, I say it half, half a joke, but the only post I would accept is lifelong dictator. <laughs> do you think that's really the answer? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, do you think, I mean, you need more autocratic government, you need... Well, you need the ability to at least be two terms in office as president, or...? No, it's just a joke. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know, I think Uribe was effective in Colombia because he got a second term. Is, is it a problem that you just have one term? I think it, it doesn't depend on the term. It depends much more on, on, the, on the individual. But frankly, you know, the political system in Mexico is very complicated. You know, this three-party or multi-party thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not conductive to a, to good policy decisions, and it's it's really difficult for anybody to come in and do a a real change. You know, I I get to know all of these uh, politicians, and uh, when they are coming into office, they they really think that they can change and they can do something, and then uh, reality sets in, and they see all the it's complicated. So. I, 
that's why I'm convinced that what we need is less of, of that kind of intrusive government and much more individual action, much more support for small and medium business, and, and much more citizen participation in the conduction of, of the public things. I think it would be really something that that we could do. And I'll give you an example now. I have a daughter, 31 years old, and um, one day she came and said, I want to be a congresswoman. What? You're going to be in that organization? <laughs> so it was hard, you know, to accept it. But, you know, I've been saying this for a long time. So maybe she listened and said, well, I can, I can go there and maybe I can learn and maybe I can make a difference. So um, I respect that and I support her. And, and she's been there for two years and learned a lot. And I think that um, both she and I are a better understanding of how things work. Now she's going to be... She's going to run for Senate, and I think she'll be successful, and, and so she's participating. And it's very difficult, you know, in her circle of friends, uh, privileged young men and women, why would they want to go into that ambiance? Well, it's, it's difficult. What do you think is driving her? Mm, well, she's a very smart young girl, and uh, maybe she wants to make a difference, huh? Another question. We have another question yeah. over here on your right. A question for uh, Mr. Salina, Arturo, Arturo Villar. We keep hearing, especially lately, about how important it would be for the United States to legalize drugs and stop all these crazy, awful things that are happening. Is there a movement in Mexico to legalize drugs no. in Mexico and start there? No, and if not why? Why? Why wouldn't there? Unfortunately, we have this bad idea in Mexico that unless the United States does something, we cannot do anything. But it's it's a it's a wrong idea. Like for example, in Mexico, guns are illegal. Period. End of story. There's no gun shops, and they're legal here. Plenty of them. So why couldn't we do the same thing? It's because our leaders are scared of the response of the Americans. I mean, we might even get invaded here. Yeah. But is there a movement of any type? Are there people of your uh, stature talking about the possibility of yes. pushing for that? Yes, and and here also there's, there's, there's a different um, aspect. One thing is legalization where, you know, you say that only loans under 20% per year, APR, can be made. The translation in economic terms is, okay, only loans above $5,000 will be allowed. And nobody wants that, right? Because what, if the poor people don't need $5,000 loans, they need a $500 loan. But the point is, a small loan... that's just because the cost of administrating it is Yes, so of course. Yeah. It, to, to, to do a, a credit application, to investigate it, to service it, it has a fixed cost whether it's 500, 5,000, or 500 million. And that's why the interest rate has to be bigger for smaller loans. And there's no money that's more expensive than the one you can't get. Right. And, you know, and for example, in our bank, we have 10 million credit customers. And they're paying 100% interest rate. Oh my God, this guy is you know, gouging. No. This is the best option. This is the most competitive option out there. And it's far better than the loan sharks. 
and it's better than the competition. Otherwise, they won't be with me. You know, and you know, you can't uh, kid or, or mess around with ten million people. I mean, this is a lot of big numbers here. So this APR legislation is really backward. And as I said, it happened in Colombia. They're a credit-starved country because they won't lift the rates fast enough. Now they're changing that. I mean, what sort of interest rate do you think you would need to charge for it to be viable? Uh, in the as US? I said, $400, 100%. It's very simple. I mean, this is just math, I mean. You know? And so, so and you somebody... Think there, you think there would be a market at that interest rate? In no, no, US? I don't think. I know it because we're already there. And, and what happens here in America is, for example, in the payday loan industry, you know, you, you get a $300 loan with a, and you have to pay it in 15 days. In case you have, you know, if many people have, would have an emergency, the car get broken, medical stuff, you don't have insurance, so they, they do this. That is a really expensive thing. We could service that, you know, with a $300 loan for 12 months at a, at a much better, um, um, smaller payment. But the regulators are a real obstacle here. When we started the Banco Azteca, it was a huge fight with regulators because they insisted that all the rules that applied to Citibank would apply to us. Namely, each loan would have to be approved by a credit committee. Yeah, like, you know, 10 million. Where do we start? Um, you'd have to have a complete file, all kinds of paper this thick for each loan. Where do we put all these papers? So the reserve requirements uh, totally off track. So all these things that's taken us a long time to educate the regulators and to make them aware that it's important for people to have access to credit. Yeah. And are you having those conversations with regulators in the U.S. at the moment? No, not? not right now. I'm right. sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of uh, looking around. Um, you know, if if I was a regulator in the United States and somebody shows up with bank application with this guy's nuts, you know. Don't they see him, uh, all these banks going bust? So, but we believe that in the United States there's a large, large amount of people that are underbanked, that are fed up with commissions, with all kinds of fees, and that are not having access to credit at all because of the small amount. So that's something that we want to explore, and we're actively moving now in that, that regard. But I still have not had this conversation with regulators. It's very complicated because it's also a state thing, not only a federal. So it's uh, quite a challenge. But I think that is an area of opportunity. And of course, our network, Azteca America, should do better. The more coverage we had, have, it will be better. But you know, this network business in the United States is very complicated because we cannot own the stations. It's, it's, you have to have a United States citizenship we don't have so we need to look for affiliates and we need to buy stations that have high power and stations that have good cable carriage and good numbers and uh, positions in cable it takes a long time the one thing I'm glad of here is that after 10 years with Azteca America we're not losing money we don't have any debt and at least you know we have some staying power because many others have come through this business and lost their shirts in the Hispanic television market in the, in the United States. So.
Do we have any more questions? Yeah. Yes, we have time for one more question. Mm -hmm. We have uh, both of our speakers will be downstairs in the lobby for our reception. You can ask them questions down there as well. We want to thank everyone for coming out on such a dreary night. Um, <laughs> our speakers appreciate it and we appreciate it. So thank you for coming. And now our last question. Um, Alicia Gonzalez, so if I've understood you correctly, you think well of Lula. Calderon has spent too much money on this failed fight against the cartels and Chavez no way. So what, in your opinion, is the model for Latin America today? Is it Brazil or? Oh, you mean, uh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to say because in, in Latin America you have so many different things. Like I said, Venezuela, Ecuador, uh, Nicaragua are, are just hopeless. I, and I feel very negative about what, what's happening there. And then you see things like Brazil, which done very well, but at the same time it's extremely regulated. There's lots of regulations and an immensely complicated tax uh, situation in Brazil. So it's hard to say that's a model. In Mexico, eh, it has, again, a huge opportunity. But I would say the model is the underground economy, which is small businesses run by very simple men and women who just don't exist for GDP purposes, they're not measured, they're not paying payroll taxes, they're not paying uh, income taxes, but they're creating a lot of jobs. And frankly, from a political point of view, it's going to be very difficult to, to get the regulations out of the way so that these uh, um, businesses can flourish. So, I mean, that, that's, that's what's happening and that's probably what's going to drive the growth of these countries going forward, and not necessarily that I agree, because again, this is very bad for, for, for our established businesses. You know, I'll tell you another story. We used to have a chain of, of, of clothing stores called The One, and we had to close it. Of course, we were not so good managers of stores for clothing, but also what happened was we'd have the store, we'd pay the rent and the payroll and the value-added tax, and right in front of us, in the street, right in front of us, there, two meters, we have all these street vendors selling clothes for no, no value-added tax. You know, so it's 15% difference. So how can you compete with that? So, so bad mistake, you know, but so I, I think that that's not going to change in our countries. You know, if, if and I want to just wrap up just by asking you one more question myself. Um, I've read that you're worried about America. Is that right? And what are, what are you worried about? Well, 15 trillion debt. So the debt is the problem. Yeah, I mean, then the deficit is like 1.5. I saw this uh, this very simplistic uh, explanation of how it would look in a family. So the family owns. That's a very rich family. That 15 trillion in debt. Yeah. Well, if you take all the zeros, so you don't get mixed up, the, the family is. Uh, down $150,000 in debt, but they only make 25000 a year, but they spend thirty-five. So it's thing is actually growing at 10000 plus per year. What kind of family business is this? I mean, clearly, uh, there's got to be a cut in spending here. 
it's 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 a tough time, you know. It's, it's tough to uh, to run all these wars and have all these planes and bomb all these countries. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe do some schools and some productive investment down here would be a better idea. So I don't want to end on a negative note. So give us one thing to be optimistic about as we finish. <laughs> <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, it's human capital that counts, and all these young men and women here, they're gonna not gonna sit around on their hands. Uh, it, for somebody to fix their lives. I mean, we're, we're human and we're going to go out there and we're going to strive to achieve what we need, what we want. And that is the, the richness of, of humanity. So uh, in spite of the mismanagement of governments, in spite of the mistaken strategies, it's just an immense force that, that won't stop. And that's why I'm so optimistic about Mexico, the 112 million young men and women in Mexico. It's a young country. They're not going to stand around and be poor. Well, thank you very much for, for talking to us. It's been great. <laughs>